the way of living that we know today, where life is organized by capitalism, is not natural. It's, it's historical. It emerged quite recently, and it need not last forever. And indeed, it can't, because it's destroying humanity and it's destroying the planet we live on. Hello, everyone. This is Makio and Jack, and we're back with another Enzo conversation. Today, we have Dr. Joel Wainwright with us. Joel is a professor of geography and environmental studies at The Ohio State University and the co-author of Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. And before we get into the details of the book, can you set the scene? We're hopping right into this. What right. is the current scientific consensus on climate change? You know, where do we stand? Well, let's uh, let's start with a, a few basics. Uh, the world is in a very serious crisis. Uh, we are cooking the planet, in effect. And we all know the reason for this. It's because we're pulling fossil fuels out of the crust of the Earth and burning them up, and thereby changing the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. It's relatively minor changes in the big scheme of things. For instance, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has increased in the last 200 years from around 280 parts per million at the start of the industrial era to around 420 today. We're speaking in May 2021. Uh, that doesn't seem like a very big change, but it's sufficient to warm the planet by over one degree Celsius on the average. Um, but it, the problem is that um, the heating is going to continue and has already had very serious consequences for many of the beings that we share this planet with. And if we go past uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, the scientists tell us that the, uh, the, the crisis will be extremely severe for many, many living things in this planet, including billions of human beings. So it's pretty simple what we have to do. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. Uh, but that turns out to be no simple feat because global capitalism presently runs on fossil fuels. And uh, although there are some people who, who believe that it, it's a relatively simple matter to shift the form of energy that we use. Uh, my co-author, Jeff Mann, and I uh, don't feel that way because um, the, the, the energy system isn't just a physical reality. It's also a political and economic form of power. And therefore, simply put, the effort to uh, adjust our way of living to uh, something like a sustainable or rational basis requires a very significant political and economic struggle. So that's what we're really talking about. So the book that we wrote, Climate Leviathan, is an effort to lay out something like a political theory adequate to the challenge that we face. Yeah, and so you focus on political issues of sovereignty and economics. Can you elaborate on why these are so essential when making these future projections? Sure, uh, it might be helpful to begin by pointing out that there's a fairly significant literature out there now on the, what we typically call the politics of climate change. I've got a whole bookshelf uh, loaded with books here about that. Most of those books tend to give emphasis to two major areas. On one hand, there's a great deal of focus on the mitigation of carbon and uh, economics, like how to apply a carbon tax or a cap and trade program in order to bring about a efficient reduction in carbon emissions. Actually, that literature has been fairly well settled now for about a quarter century. I recall quite clearly when I was an undergraduate taking a, a, a seminar on environmental economics where we debated these issues intensely. And, uh, but the truth is that 
it, it, from an economic perspective, it's pretty clear that we need a global carbon tax. The problem is that 25 years later, we still don't have one. And actually, we're not all that close to getting one, as far as I can tell. So, but anyway, that's the first kind of major area of debate. The second concerns technology. Uh, there's a lot of people who are heavily invested in the idea that the way to bring about the solution to climate change is to convert how we produce and consume electricity or energy and to get us away from fossil fuels, therefore, by making a better solar grid, et cetera. And again, here too, there's a lot of important work and I don't, I don't mean to suggest it's unimportant, but the problem is that typically works in this field, as in the economics literature, don't ask the hard questions about politics, namely why we haven't made the conversion to something like a solar-based energy system, even though it seems pretty intuitive. So our book is part of a growing literature that I would characterize as a Marxist analysis of the political economy of the climate crisis. That's how I'd put it. And there's a number of writers in this field. Our specific contribution within this field is to try and examine uh, what would be required to bring about a radical change in global capitalism that would allow us to address the climate crisis in something like a just way. In other words, we want a theory of climate justice. And in the second place, we ask a question, which I think has been on the mind of many activists. It's hardly like we just came up with it ourselves. In fact, I, 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 because I teach a course here at Ohio State every fall on climate politics, I happen to know that a great many undergraduates and uh, young people generally ask themselves this question all the time, which goes like this. It varies, of course, from person to person, but it basically sounds like this. Okay, if the adults don't get their act together quickly and decarbonize global capitalism, which seems rather unlikely for many people, understandable, then what in the world is gonna happen politically and economically to the planet? And unfortunately, I think for the most part, our society totally fails to even pose this question adequately. I mean, as a serious question, uh, but instead offers variations on, uh, on one hand, utopian dreams about you don't really have to worry about it because technology will save you or we'll all fly to Mars, which is totally ridiculous. Or on the other hand, um, a kind of dystopian future, doom-mongering, where we all just say we're totally screwed and so don't even think about it, which is even worse, of course. But actually, both of them are totally inadequate as, as a basis for thinking about one's future or, or ethics or politics. So uh, we also ambitiously try to sketch out various possible scenarios of political and economic life on this planet, given different possible uh, uh, changes that could occur as the world faces up to climate change. And in making that argument, Jeff and I posit or hypothesize that there are two fundamental questions or two matters, which will, to a significant degree, determine the future path that the world goes down. Uh, one of those factors or, or matters concerns capitalism. The world is presently organized on a capitalist basis. That means that all of our lives are shaped to a significant degree by the need to sell labor power, to earn a wage so that we can buy commodities. That's what life is all about. And all of this occurs in order to facilitate the accumulation of capital among those who have it to invest to begin with. So that's capitalism in a nutshell. Well, it's no accident that the climate crisis is happening during the capitalist era of human history, which is very brief. You know, humans have been around for three or 400,000 years. We've only been living in a capitalist form of society for a few hundred. And uh, it's during this period that we're seeing these environmental crises because capitalism is essentially globalizing. It's uh, expansionary. 
it's accumulation oriented. Essentially, that means that it is, it is motivated or driven by a need to convert the planet into commodities to facilitate accumulation. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in a kind of Marxist code, but I hope that my words are clear enough. Uh, the, the punchline is that when we think about where the world is going, we can run, but we can't hide. We have to ask the question, will the world continue to be capitalist or will we somehow transcend capitalism to make a world that is, for lack of a better word, socialist or genuinely democratic or communist or what have you? In the book, we try not to get caught up in the debate about which word to use, but let's just say post-capitalist. Now, that's, that, that much there's a significant literature in ecological Marxism that takes on those questions. As you would imagine, for the most part, it's quite critical of capitalism. And it tries to, in different ways, uh, theorize or imagine what a solar socialist world might look like, to use the common expression. But the other thing that Jeff and I felt like we had to take on in our book, Climate Leviathan, which is not, frankly, taken up by many Marxists or indeed many political theorists in general, concerns the form of sovereignty that is likely to emerge in a world that has to address rapid climate change. And the big argument here, and one that takes us back to Thomas Hobbes, which we could talk about if you're interested, but it's not really important. The theory and the philosophy is secondary, ultimately. The question here is about the form of sovereignty that the world will be organized by after the elite attempt to address climate change, and either in a capitalist or a non-capitalist way. And to, to come right out with it, our argument is that it's unlikely that in the immediate future that we'll be able to overcome capitalism. And working on that premise, which again, isn't necessarily what we're cheering for, but it's a, it's a hypothesis. We ask how capitalism might respond to the crisis of global climate change. And contrary to many people who seem to think that, I don't know how to put this, but many people seem to think that like the, the rich people, the wealthy, the people who frankly have the most power in the world will just ignore climate change by walling themselves off or living on yachts or flying to Mars or something like that. That's, those are fantasies actually. They can't, they can't build walls high enough and they can't actually go live on the moon. So what they will do is in fact, try to reorganize the world's political system in order to facilitate their adaptation to a warmer and wetter, a warmer and weirder world. And in that scenario, we hypothesize, uh, they, will, they will facilitate the creation of what we characterize as planetary sovereignty, which is a new, a new form of sovereignty where the justification for rule, uh, the rulers are justified in being sovereign, not so much by their defense of a people or a nation, but by their defense of life on earth as such. And moreover, where their actions are intended to have implications for the management of the planet as a planet. Now that all marks a fairly significant shift in the history of sovereignty, which has its own history, which I won't get into now. But the point is, you put all that together, what does it mean? It means we're hypothesizing that we're on the cusp of some very serious global changes in political order, which will be, um, which will be uh, uh, enacted, adapted, you could say, as a result of planetary climate change. Of course, that's not what we're cheering for. There's other scenarios that we're more hopeful about, but that in a nutshell is the big argument of the book. Yeah, and so in the book, you lay out four scenarios. Can you walk us through those really quickly? In the book, we posit that there are four broad pathways that the world could uh, move into in the future. These pathways are not things. 
they're more like possible future trajectories. You could think of them as complex ensembles or systems that characterize the world of possibility for uh, the future to come. The one that we think is most likely is a scenario where, unfortunately, you might say, the world remains capitalist. But in order to adapt itself to the warming, the weirdness, the transformation of the weather, and frankly, all of the violence and death that will be accompanied by uh, the, the decades ahead, uh, the elite of the world managed to produce a form of planetary sovereignty. And that doesn't mean that territorial nation states go away, but rather it means that something like a, a, a transnational elite representing the most powerful capitalist nation states come to assume for themselves the role of masters of the universe, except really they're planetary sovereigns in our term. So in that scenario, uh, we could expect to see, for instance, an elite clique or body um, managing geoengineering, the flow of refugees and immigrants from one place to another, and effectively deciding who lives and who dies in a new kind of planetary order that is intended to, quote unquote, save life on Earth. Uh, the likelihood of producing what we usually call democracy or justice in such a scenario is extremely low. Now, there's another scenario where you could still have that kind of planetary sovereignty, but where it would be based on more radical premises. And in fact, I think a lot of people on the left have already started to kind of imagine such scenarios. For instance, in his recent books, uh, my friend Andreas Malm sketches a theory of what he calls climate Leninism. And in our scenario, uh, in our book rather, Jeff and I characterize this as climate Maoism, but it amounts to the same thing really. It's essentially a, a, a scenario where you would have a revolutionary politics so encompassing that it would produce a planetary sovereignty of an anti-capitalist type. And this would be a planetary sovereign that would have the capacity to do things that many of us only dream about, like shutting down all the coal mines, closing off all the oil pipelines. I see Jackson smiling here. Uh, actually providing for free passage of all the migrants. I mean, in the future, in, you guys are young enough to know that in the decades ahead, it's quite likely that hundreds of millions, perhaps even as many as a billion or two people will have to move where they live as a consequence of rising oceans, warming uh, atmosphere, uh, extreme, extreme heat waves and the like. And under present conditions, let's be honest, the capitalist nation states do not have the means to justly manage anything like the mass transfer of hundreds of millions of people on the planet. I mean, my God, we, we, we go to war over much smaller uh, movements of immigrants. And so it's not impossible to imagine a scenario where we could have a planetary sovereign sorting these things out on an anti-capitalist basis. And that's the scenario that we call climate Maoism. And partly we call it climate Maoism, I'll mention in passing because Mao Zedong's abiding contribution to Marxist theory was to point out that the social uh, or subjective position we call the proletariat is not necessarily the only revolutionary one in a capitalist society. He, he mainly led a revolution of peasants. But more generally, you could say Mao basically said, capitalism can be overthrown for any number of contradictory reasons that are not necessarily connected to the capital labor relation. And in the second place, uh, Mao, of course, made his revolution in East Asia, specifically in China. And not only are there more Maoists in the world today than any other type of Marxist by, by, quite, a, by quite a distance, by the way, but also Maoism is not dead as an ideology. And I think that when you, when you look at the maps of where people will suffer the consequences of climate change in the decades ahead, Asia pops out. And so it's, it seems quite likely to us that the world 
we'll see movements of poor people, displaced people, uh, forced migrants and the like, uh, towards something like a revolutionary solution to the climate crisis. And we think that something like what we call climate Maoism might be the result. Uh, the other, another scenario though, which is out there uh, uh, in, in the world today already, readily apparent to everyone who's paying attention to politics, we call climate behemoth. Behemoth is historically the enemy of Leviathan in the myths that go back to the Old Testament, the book of Job, even farther back, Ugaritic myths. Uh, Leviathan is usually figured as a giant sea serpent and Behemoth as a, as, a, as a beast of the land. And the two of them fight it out. So sometimes is reflective of land versus sea. But in our scenario, Behemoth is the force in the world that wants to defend the capitalist order, but prevent the emergence of something like a planetary sovereignty, preventing it by reinforcing the existing terror of the capitalist nation state system. When I put it like this, you can imagine all of those reactionary and fascistic politicians that the world has seen bubble up since 2008 to 2009, from Berlusconi in Italy to Trump, of course, in the United States, Modi in India, uh, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, at least in the last few years. One could go on. And what, what all these figures, Bolsonaro is probably the most recent and extreme case in the sphere of Latin America. Well, these figures have a number of things in common. They tend to be racist and xenophobic and use religion and uh, sexuality as ways of whipping up the, the, the masses. But notably, they all are um, militantly opposed to any kind of liberal or science-based reorganization of society to address climate change. That's no accident. Uh, many of these figures are uh, tied to the fossil fuel industry directly, but more generally, their ideology I think is partly a response to a recognition of the hegemony or the emerging leadership of what we call climate leviathan. In other words, it's a politics that opposes the pretense of liberal global governance at every level and opposes it by encouraging a retreat to the local and the authentic and the rooted blood and soil. It's always a right-wing reactionary turn and one to be avoided, which raises the question, is there a better way to oppose leviathan and, uh, or must we go with uh, something like the revolutionary solutions advocated by uh, Andreas Malm in the form of uh, climate Leninism? Uh, well, many of my friends advocate for climate Leninism. I'm not going to tell them they're wrong per se, but what Jeff and I suggest is that it's, it's probably impossible to imagine for us an anti-capitalist planetary sovereignty today, which is just and, uh, and democratic. And that for us is the, is the great problem. And it leads us to conclude the book with what is essentially a kind of intellectual and political question mark, which is whether it's possible to produce a world based on what we call climate X. And we use the sign X because it's frankly so hard to imagine. But climate X describes a scenario where humanity has simultaneously overcome or transcended capitalism while deforming the present form of sovereignty so that we have on one hand, overcome all the forms of violence we associated with, with it, such as the uh, racist uh, immigration measures and the walls and borders and so forth. But on the other hand, we have done so without scaling up to the creation of something like a planetary sovereignty. In other words, where political life is more fundamentally rooted in genuine forms of solidarity, equality, liberation, and freedom. So, that is what we're fighting for. And we, we conclude the book essentially by saying it's only in such a scenario that we could imagine a genuine 
a genuinely just response to the challenge of climate change. But we recognize it's an incredibly tall order and um, we don't have a blueprint, but nonetheless, um, that is the struggle that we're fighting for. Okay, so you, you position Climate X as the most preferable outcome of the four, uh, but like you said, it's kind of, it's almost seemingly impossible to imagine something that is both uh, locally sovereign and anti-capitalist. And because it's so hard to, I guess, pin down these material realities, we wanted to ask you about the values that Climate X is built on as kind of a framework to then expand. So you mentioned in your book that there's three fundamental principles, equality, inclusion, and dignity of all, uh, and solidarity in composing a world of many worlds. And then with these principles kind of comes two traditions, one, the Marxist tradition and the uh, indigenous conception of sovereignty or the lack thereof. So why is it important for us to understand uh, these principles in line with these traditions that you've mentioned? Whenever you're in a situation where you're trying to characterize something you'd like in life, but it's so far-fetched or hard to imagine that you don't know where to begin. A useful starting point is often to describe the principles by which the scenario you would like or the thing that you want could would, would be characterized by. And at the end of the book, in, in our, our admittedly sketchy and difficult attempt to describe climate X, we thought at a minimum, we should lay out what we might call the underlying political values of such a way of being. And so we arrive at uh, this conclusion, just talking about equality and dignity and solidarity as a way of um, recapitulating what we might call classic left themes. But you're right that um, we then kind of imply that that's going to require on one hand uh, learning from the Marxist tradition and on the other hand from the indigenous tradition. You, but the question as I understand is essentially why those? And the short, the short answer is that in effect, what we're doing by appealing to those traditions is reminding the reader of the two fundamental uh, qualities that's, that differentiate the four paths that we have um, laid out in the book. Because the Marxist tradition, for whatever else we might say about it, has been the source of the greatest and most substantive critical analysis of capitalism. And the one that has repeatedly pointed to the possibility of a different way of being. In fact, we could, we could debate the meaning of Marxism. It's an important question to raise. But one thing I think that we would all agree on is that beginning with the writings of the, the man named Karl Marx and all of the people who have followed him and trying to figure this out, what the tradition has always tried to do is to say, the way of living that we know today, where life is organized by capitalism, is not natural. It's, it's historical. It emerged quite recently and it need not last forever. And indeed it can't because it's destroying humanity and it's destroying the planet we live on. So we have to derive some lessons from this tradition in order to confront the challenge of creating climate X. On the other hand, however, we also recognize that we are, since Jeff and I happen to live in, in Canada and the United States respectfully, uh, we happen to recognize that we live on lands that were colonized and also, uh, we have ourselves participated in different ways in the struggles for the dignity and liberation of indigenous peoples and learned a great deal in that process. Not so much as Marxists, but just as human beings. And so through the course of that uh, political activism, activism and reflections upon it, we came to realize that one of the signature contributions of the struggles for indigenous peoples, which 
we should always remember vary a great deal from place to place and one time to another. They're not at all the same. But one general contribution is to raise the question of why we have the form of sovereignty that we know today at all. Right? And if I could put it very crudely, I think one of the lessons we learned from a movement like the Zapatistas of Chiapas in southern Mexico. The Zapatistas declared war on the Mexican government, saying that NAFTA meant death to indigenous peoples. This is uh, Zapatista subcomandante Marcos speaking in the 1990s. Nosotros tratamos de delinear un perfil a grandes rasgos de lo que podía ser la figura. We are creating a general profile of what civil Zapatistas could look like, taking the essentials of armed Zapatismo to recognize not taking power, not wanting to hold public office, and the struggle continues for democracy, freedom, and justice, and demanding that the government place itself at the service of society to change the relationship in Mexican society between rulers and the ruled. Is that when people on the left suggest that the only way to solve the climate crisis is to overthrow capitalism with the state and to put in place an even more powerful state, like a world state, a planetary sovereign, they're probably stuck in a certain way of thinking that imagines power over the earth as the only way to solve our problems. And perhaps what we need to do is overcome capitalism by subtracting ourselves from capitalist society as well as the state which as far as I can understand it is what the Zapatistas have been trying to do for the last 30 years uh, with a remarkable degree of success, although not without paying a very high price for it. So that I think is what we were trying to say in the conclusion of the book. Now I have to confess that that is the part of the book that has been most routinely and heavily criticized by many of our friends and comrades. But I think Jeff and I, I know I speak for Jeff when I say, we welcome the criticism and we agree that it's too vague. But in our own defense, I will say this, part of the reason our answers are vague is because we don't have enough of a global climate justice movement to think with. And that we can, we're, we're, not, we're not clairvoyant. We're actually participants in a global movement for transformation. And we feel confident that as the movement grows in depth and breadth, more thinkers will be able to develop these ideas further on their own accord, even if they never read our book because that's really how social transformation works, is that people can only see a certain distance past their own situation, but then as things start to change, and particularly during periods of political and economic upheaval, then eventually breakthroughs come through. So we're, we're, we're not uh, dissatisfied, so to speak, with the limitations of our vision. We recognize them, and we hope that collectively we can push far beyond them relatively quickly. So you said that there isn't, um, or you just mentioned that there isn't a big enough climate justice movement at the moment to sustain a more clear idea of the future. And when speaking about a global climate movement right now, we kind of have to talk about green capitalism. So right now, at least in the U.S., and I don't want to say the radical left, but I want to, I, I do want to say that the Green New Deal dominates a lot of left discourse. You, I totally uh, agree. I totally agree. Yeah, you conceded. You give a certain portion or, or a certain amount of the book to talk about why green capitalism or green Keynesianism has failed and will continue to fail. Can you kind of explain that to us in layman's terms right now? Sure, uh, I'll do my best. So the chapter you're referring to is chapter five. It's called A Green Capitalism with a question mark. And in that chapter, we try to make the argument that the underlying logic of what we call climate leviathan or any attempt to produce a capitalist planetary sovereign is going to be heavily indebted to the thought of the late and great John Maynard Keynes 
And so um, hence we speak of it as a green Keynesianism, an effort to use a kind of planetary sovereign, uh, perhaps coordinated through uh, central banks and multiple states to stimulate a new round of capitalist accumulation, but one organized around the transformation of the world's energy and production uh, so that we can achieve the uh, uh, some version of the uh, decarbonization of global capitalism. It's an idea that's been circulating for a long time and it pops up all over the place. Uh, I, I just finished uh, reading a novel uh, that you, you might've heard of by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry for the Future. And it's re I've never read a novel where there's so much discussion of central banking and money. And uh, many of the chapters of the book which concern central banks and money essentially lay out the logic of a green Keynesian solution uh, very much in the spirit of what we characterize as climate leviathan. In fact, the reason I read the novel is because I had around four or five friends tell me I have to read the novel because they felt like it was the novel version of the middle section of our book. Uh, unfortunately, I can't totally recommend it to your readers, but for reasons that if I explained would uh, be like a total spoiler. So I won't say that. So I'll just say that the it's a great novel in many respects, but it has a terrible flaw. But leaving that aside, um, when we talk about a Green New Deal, it's important to distinguish the concept from the actual proposals that have been on the table, of which the latter have multiplied so quickly that, it, it, and they get lumped together. We have to be a little careful. So I'm gonna try and disaggregate those efficiently. Uh, but for the reader or for the listener who's curious, I would highly recommend Ed McNally's recent essay on a Sidecar, it's a website, uh, May 5th, 2021, and it's called Who's Green New Deal? And here's the idea in a nutshell. A Green New Deal obviously is a new deal, that is to say, uh, patterned on uh, what the United States experienced during the 1930s under Roosevelt's presidency, which was a, a Keynesian attempt to use the state to uh, resolve the contradictions that led to the Great Depression. And I think we'll probably all learn about that in high school, so I won't uh, repeat here, but the, the concept of greening it means that it would simultaneously address the ecological contradiction and the economic contradiction. But uh, note that the, the New Deal, like most Keynesian initiatives of that era, was emphatically organized at the territory of the capitalist nation state. So the US New Deal of Roosevelt was a US initiative. And uh, other countries that adopted Keynesian solutions of that type were organized around their own national economies based on their territories. The real difference with a Green New Deal is not so much that it's organized around the energy system, because actually a lot of New Deals in the 30s were about electrification of rural areas and so on. But the real difference is that it would have to be planetary because it only works if you're solving the global capitalist crisis and if you're also reducing global carbon emissions. And so that immediately raises the question, what would be the Keynesian lever? What would be the equivalent of the US state for a Green New Deal? So far as I can tell, no one has answered that question yet. But if and when that occurs, that would be equal to the creation of what we call a planetary sovereign of a capitalist type. Now a quick word about recent Green New Deals you've probably heard of. I'll just mention three in passing. Uh, here in the United States, we heard a lot about uh, Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, uh, which uh, was, was introduced, if I recall, in 2018. It's an interesting bill. If you haven't seen it before, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, there's a lot of things in it that are a bit surprising. Uh, when many people look at it, the first thing that strikes them is that it seems like a jobs bill. And there's language in there about social justice and a lot of other things that we like on the left, but very little about how they're actually going to 
rein in the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, unless I'm mistaken, there's no specific carbon tax proposed in that legislation, which would simply have to exist if you were going to quickly decarbonize the US economy. Uh, at any rate, it never really had a hearing in Congress and it didn't really have much of a chance. Uh, a version of it was endorsed by Bernie Sanders, but of course he got defeated in the primaries, which leads us to Joe Biden, who has been, uh, how shall we say, more Keynesian than many people expected since he came to office. And he has a version of green Keynesianism he's rolled out that involves a trillion dollar plus initiative to put people back to work by investing in uh, green technologies and a new grid and solar and so forth and so on, which has led many people to call it a green new deal. But notably, it's not as progressive or as significant as the one that was proposed by Ocasio-Cortez. An even more radical version of a Green New Deal, however, was proposed in England before the last election uh, by the Labor Party. And that's the one that I thought was most ambitious and interesting. Uh, for instance, among other things, it called for the nationalization of the power system, uh, unless I misunderstood it, as well as water and uh, renationalization of British Airways, I believe, renationalization of the uh, train lines, as well as proportionally speaking, a much more significant uh, state spending or investment into the transformation of the fossil fuel economy. In other words, the proposed uh, labor initiative would have gone above and beyond anything that Biden or Ocasio-Cortez proposed. This was one of the reasons why the conservatives were so frightened, frankly, about labor in the last election and why, uh, uh, well, actually, it's not really why they lost. They, lo they lost because of Brexit. That's neither here nor there. But the point is that here, these are only three of the variations on this theme that have emerged in recent years. One thing to note is that so far, so far, none of them have been able to produce the desired change. But what is important to look at also is the direction that all of these ideas are tending, which is that everywhere it seems like, uh, at least in the core capitalist societies, progressive and liberal type people want to see the state used as a lever to transform the energy system, which is only logical. But again, these initiatives have so far failed to transform the energy systems rapidly enough. And additionally, uh, at a certain point, they will have to address the, the planetary dimension. How will they all link up in different places? So that will take us beyond green Keynesianism to something like uh, green, uh, a global green Keynesianism, which would be planetary sovereignty by our thinking. Welcome to the Speculation Zone. zone, 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 zone. It, it, it also seems clear to me and Mikio that green capitalism or green Keynesianism or the Green New Deal, none of it address the fundamental problem, which, you know, is a large part of um, your book and also just uh, ecological Marxism, which is that there has yet to be any kind of significant effort to address the climate system under capitalism. Right. There still is the incentive to exploit and extract from the earth and burn. And we have all this infrastructure that kind of keeps us locked into this. So if we quote unquote, trust the science and look at the current situa situation, it's clear that capitalism has failed for us at least. Uh, and yet most climate groups across the world and even in the US, and there are some radical ones who maybe disagree with this, 
um, you know, like progressive groups such as the Sunrise Movement consider the Green New Deal as fundamental to securing a more just and equitable future. Well, your book kind of lays out how that might not lead to a more just and equitable future. Right. Well said. As, as young people who, I guess, you know, we just graduated college, we're on the verge of our professional uh, lives and whatnot. It's kind of hard to figure out, well, all these groups, these groups that seem to have any kind of mainstream following or any critical mass are doing something that looks wholly insufficient to us. What do we do? So in the beginning of your book, you talk a little bit um, and, and Makio had uh, a professor from Washington, Professor Brett Gustafson on last week to talk about this. And, and Dr. Gustafson asked Makio, what kind of, um, what motivates young people to, to get out and do stuff? And I thought Makio's answer was really eloquent. He basically says that, you know, in the United States, we've had this idea that every generation is better off than the next and that we're always going to be growing. You talk about progress versus becoming in yours. Well, we have this ideological idea of progress. Well, now we're starting to see the consequences. In your book, you quote Hannah Arendt saying that uh, the nuclear holocaust and the Nazi holocaust taught a lot of people that they couldn't rely on Western traditions. Well, I think we're learning about the limitations and the consequences of uh, the capitalist system and this exploitative, these exploitative structures that have been around for a long time. So- Long way to get to my question. Right. When it looks like you're staring into this void, mm. how do you stare it down? What seems to be inevitable suffering or an insurmountable obstacle and, you know, persevere towards something? How, in your experience, do you kind of psychologically deal with that? Great question. That's not an easy one to answer. You know, your comment about staring into the void brings to mind a, a quote, which is typically attributed to Nietzsche. I'm not sure it's actually written by him, but it goes something like this. Uh, you, when you want to understand certain fundamental problems, you have to stare into the void. But if you stare too long, it stares back at you. And I think that what you're asking is, how long do we have to stare? Um, and as an aside, I'll mention that um, during the course of writing this book, which obviously you know, we're taking on some pretty dark themes, right? I mean, we're, we're trying to produce what I would like to characterize as an honest and unflinching analysis of where the world is going. And it just so happens that it's extremely dark if you're honest with yourself. Uh, and so um, frequently I would come home from a day of working on the book and I would chat with my partner uh, at dinner time. you know, how was your day? And uh, she would ask me, you know, what did you do today? And I said, it was kind of shorthand at the dinner table. I, you know, I stared into the abyss and, uh, and then the, everybody at the table knew that that meant, you know, dad was writing about um, the, where the world is going again. Uh, so, um, but the, the, the joke about that little story is that um, is also intended as partly an answer to you, which is that the only thing that the only thing I know that can really sustain someone uh, so that they continue to have, not, not to make ourselves sound particularly great about this. I mean, anyone can do it, but, but, but still, to really be able to analyze where things are going honestly, and then to also do the political work that's necessary. You have to have conviction, you have to have courage, you have to have a certain honesty, uh, you have to have uh, a willingness to be honest with yourself about the costs and so forth. To, to sustain those things, you, you, you have to have community, which doesn't ne necessarily have to come from sitting around the table with your family. I mean, that's one version of it. Uh, you could live with other friends who support you 
You could build genuine ties to other people who are involved in the struggle. You could live in a place that has nurturing uh, social networks and social ties. But now for the bad news, you know, in my experience, many, many young people, particularly in the United States today, don't really have these things, you know? I mean, I, particularly this last year, it was just brutal for, um, for life, how shall we put it? It was a very difficult time. And, you know, a lot of people feel emotionally overwhelmed and anxious these days because of not just COVID and the pandemic, but because they correctly sense that the world is in a very serious crisis with respect to the environment and also politics. And on top of all that, if we look at the way social life has changed in the United States in the last 20, 30 years, um, I, you know, as we often say, people feel more atomized and they feel connected to many people, but the connections are very thin and mediated by the cell phone and the computer, which is a difficult way to live. So, uh, so, so one way of answering this question is to talk about things that have nothing to do with climate politics, but talking about like how to live your life and you know, giving up on Facebook and connecting with real people and taking a walk with a dog and that sort of thing. But I, I think you probably have heard all of that from other people. I'd be happy to give you my view on it, but let's let's stay within the realm of climate politics for the moment and come back to the other part of your question, which concerns capitalism, which to put it bluntly might be put like this. What do you do if you're a young person and you figure out that capitalism is destroying the planet, but nobody seems to know how to transcend it? That's a tough question. That's a tough question, but the first step is to learn more about capitalism. And here I have to say, there's really no uh, better first step than to study Marx and the Marxist tradition and to do so with an open mind and recognizing that many mistakes have been made by Marxists over the last 150 years, but also with a willingness to learn new things that you were not taught in school. Because unless you're exceptionally lucky, you probably were never taught anything really critical about capitalism, you know, in, in high school or college, or, or at any level of your education, however far you were able to go. Fortunately, there's never been a time when it was easier to learn about uh, the Marxist critique of capitalism, because if you go on the internet, there's a million free resources. And in any, in any event, um, if, if you live in the United States and you have access to a library, you can start by going and checking out some books and reading some things for yourself. But obviously simply studying is not sufficient. We all need to do more to practice ways of removing our dependence on capitalism as a way of organizing life. And in the, in the traditions that we know here in the United States, which have by and large not taken the form of building socialist parties, for instance, I mean, there's practically no history of a socialist party in the United States. Uh, what we do have, and we should, we should remember this and try and build on it anew, is a robust tradition of non-capitalist or anti-capitalist economic institutions that have tried to make life bearable for people on the margins or within a capitalist society who want to live differently. Think of, for instance, producer and consumer cooperatives, which were vibrant in the 30s and are by and large almost gone today, or local exchange and trading systems, or more generally, movements by workers to strike or to boycott certain consumer goods in order to leverage our power as workers and consumers so that we can create some space for ourselves to try to live in a way that is not only more sustainable, but more just. Short of a fully fledged socialist revolution, there's a huge amount that we could all do in our daily lives to begin to shift away from the capitalist mode of production. However, having said that, 
we also have to recognize that those sorts of initiatives, those uh, small intentional efforts to free ourselves up, while absolutely essential today, are not going to make the difference uh, quickly enough. And so once again, we come to this question of how do we make this great leap to something like a democratic form of socialism that could avoid climate, the climate disaster while also making the world more genuinely free and democratic. And on this note, Jackson, I have to say to you without any pretense and in all honesty, I don't know how we're going to do it. Well, now, that can be a hard thing to hear as a young person, particularly if you're honest enough to know, well, we got to do it. And here's this professor who's been studying Marx forever, and he doesn't have any idea how we're going to do it. But, um, but that is the fact. And I don't, I don't really have a lot of faith in, in, in the people who do claim to know how it's going to happen. Uh, so all I can say is that um, this is a reflection, a symptom, you might say, of a very deep crisis of the political imagination that we're living through today. And that is why, uh, among other reasons, the work of artists, designers like yourselves, engineers, poets, musicians, and others is so essential. Because the most important thing I think young people can do is to help one another break through what often probably feels like an iron cage of the lack of ability to imagine a livable future. Doing that work, helping others dream differently of a radically different world, will not only like help you feel better about yourself because you'll be contributing something, but will also lay the seeds of potential future radical forms of political and economic life that frankly are hard to sketch right now. So you talk about the, the kind of current atomization of like the leftist movement, perhaps how there's no uh, overarching narrative that kind of guides us. Um, for example, you can see uh, alongside the history of American capitalism, like you were talking about, the artistic movement of something like the Hudson River School that really uh, helped define the American relationship to the earth, uh, which really set up the foundations for uh, the way capitalism works and interacts with, uh, with nature uh, in the U.S. So I guess for us, what we kind of invested in, I would say, is the creation of new narratives uh, to capture some kind of imagination politically about our relationship to the earth. And so we're just wondering what you thought about um, this kind of artistic design oriented or perhaps just purely rhetorical uh, imagination regarding the relationship to the earth and society. Wow, that's a great question. Um, I'll try to do justice to it briefly. So one of the notable things about the climate crisis is that although it's often spoken of in technical terms, you know, parts per million of CO2, the appropriate level of a carbon tax and so forth and so on, with all of the jargon and lingo appropriate to different technical fields. In truth, it would be fair to say that the climate crisis is a crisis of the imagination because so long as ordinary people cannot really imagine living in a way that's different than we do today, then we really are in trouble. Because contrary to what liberal and mainstream politicians tell us, we cannot resolve the climate crisis justly, more or less on the terms of the existing order. So uh, for many people, this is 
a frightening proposition because I, I think it's safe to say that most people experience the moments in life where they can't really imagine things being otherwise with fear. And the gift of the artist or the poet is to remind us that those are also opportunities, opportunities to, to be different in the world and to, to experience existential questioning, not only as crisis, but also as an opening to a radically other way of being. Now, easier said than done. And unfortunately, it has to be said that even though there's a lot of art and poetry, literature being written today about climate change, I have to tell you, I regard most of it as not very good. And a great deal, even of what is good, remains totally trapped within liberal thinking. So what is to be done? Well, as always then, there's the possibility of artistic and creative works in whatever field or form that can break free of the, of the, the shackles of bourgeois ideology. And um, in one way or another, uh, provoke a radical new thinking. And uh, what's especially important today, because of the very concrete nature of the task of imagining a different way of living, is for those sorts of artistic and imaginative thinking to take form as it relates to things like transportation, urban design, geography, agriculture, what we eat, what we wear, and so forth and so on. And so if, if there's ever been a time when imaginative and creative ways of thinking about design, engineering, and art would collide effectively with environmental politics, now's the time. And I think it's, uh, it's a field that will only become more and more important in the years to come. And so I wish you all the best.